Revelation chapter number 3, very familiar passage of Scripture beginning in verse number 14. The holy inspired Word of God says, now I want you to get that. Uh, we're not just reading uh, a uh, manual. We're not just uh, reading a prayer book. Uh, we're not reading a suggestion, uh, suggested reading from Oprah. Amen. God help our nation. But uh, and some, some preachers no doubt preach from those today. But we're reading from God's holy, inspired, infallible, preserved, eternally settled Word tonight. So I want you to listen carefully. The Bible says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art poor, uh, that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Would you pray with me tonight? Heavenly Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you that it's powerful, Lord. Thank you that it's sharp and quick, Lord, that it cuts, dividing asunder of the soul and spirit. Lord, that's what we need tonight. Uh, many times our emotions would deceive us, but Your Word knows how to separate emotions from true leading and conviction of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I believe tonight that if we'll put ourselves in Your examination room, we'll be the better for it. And I just ask that each and every heart would be touched in a way that be to Your glory and Your honor, and Lord, our good as well. Father, we love You and thank You so much for who You are and what You've done. We ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. This is a very, very familiar passage of Scripture. But I hope tonight to show you some things that maybe you're not quite so familiar with in this passage. Before we begin, I'd like to ask you a couple questions that I want you to answer in your own heart and in your own mind. Uh, one of the things I'd like to ask you is this, and I'd like you to signify it by the raise of your hand. I'd like to ask how many of you, how many of you have been saved five years or more? Would you slip your hand up? Five years or more. How many of you have been saved ten years or more? How many of you have been saved 20 years or more? How many of you have been saved 30 years or more? All right, we'll keep politeness and stop asking there, amen? Now I want you to stop and I want you to think of a number. Now it's not the number I'm thinking of, we're not going to play that game, amen? But I want you to stop and think of a number and I want you to rate your spiritual determination and dedication to Jesus Christ. We could say a number between 1 and 10. One being absolutely of no interest in the things of Christ, living for yourself, living in the flesh every day. Ten being completely and totally submitted to the Holy Spirit, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, living on fire for Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want you to signify, but I'd like you to think within your mind and be honest, the Lord knows your heart better than you do, and place that number in your mind. And I want you to keep it there tonight. Because I believe it has a bearing upon our message this evening. In Revelation chapter number 3, well actually in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, we have some of the most fascinating portion of Scripture in all of the Word of God. 
And there's two avenues in which people typically interpret these Scriptures. And I believe both of them are correct. One of them is that these seven letters to seven churches present to us seven historical churches and the message of God to those churches. And I believe that's true. Uh, you study the Word of God and then study the history that goes along with it, you'll find that these were seven churches. They literally existed. Seven autonomous, independent, New Testament, Bible-believing churches that these letters were sent to. And these letters bore a message to each one of them, individual to their needs, individual to their spiritual states. You'll find also that uh, it's typical in dispensationalism. By the way, I am a dispensationalist. Uh, as you study the Word of God, that these present to us also uh, ages or periods of the church. And it presents to us, beginning with the uh, church of Ephesus, being representative of the uh, days of the church in the apostles' time, all the way up to today and what we would consider to be the Laodicean church. And let me say that I believe that that's true as well. But as we study this passage... I've always been perplexed by something. And I believe there's a third understanding of this passage. And you may have never heard this, but tonight I want to give it to you. And this is my belief, and I believe it's scriptural. Uh, Really, all the church is, is a body of believers. Isn't that true? A church is made up of a body of believers. The church is the body of Christ. But each and every person in that church is also part of the body of Christ. What a church is individually, a church will be collectively. If a church is full of lazy people, it'll be a lazy church. If a church is full of people on fire for Christ, it'll be a church that is on fire for Jesus Christ. And so as we understand this to be true, when we read this passage, I believe that just as the church progressed in a certain way, as they did not respond to the speaking of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to them, remember, there was always the exhortation given that you can repent or else what? I'll come and take your candle away. I'll come and take the light away. The period of this church will slowly disappear and give way to a new phase in church life. I believe in many ways these seven churches also present to us the life of the believer if his spiritual walk goes unchecked. If you and I live... When God speaks to our hearts, we do not repent. We refuse to turn towards Christ. I believe we follow the same path that the church, when it has been unrepentant, has followed. Certainly, many of us remember the Ephesus time in our walk with Christ. What it was like to be newly saved. What it was like to know nothing but the love of Christ day in and day out. Oh, it was all so fresh and so new. Almost like when the scales had been lifted off the eyes of Saul of Tarsus. Everything's new. We see the light of this world in a different way. We understand things in a different way. But we find that there is very soon the danger of losing and leaving our first love moving away from Christ. And certainly most of us have seen that happen to believers. I know that I have. I've seen believers get saved. And buddy, I mean, they were so on fire, you couldn't put them out. I mean, it didn't matter what you do. You walk up, slap them right in the mouth when they got to church. They'd say, well, bless you, brother. Thank you for washing your hands first. I mean, it didn't matter what you did. They were on fire for Christ. You see them two, three months later, and what's happened? They've fallen away. And all through these seven churches, you can follow, you can see the uh, marriage of uh, their uh, spiritual walk with Christ to a public life. And I'm not saying that our public life ought not be indicative of our walk with Christ, but I'm saying merely the public life overtook 
the spiritual life. And we see that, of course, historically in the marriage between uh, true Christianity and the Roman Catholic Church, the great whore of Babylon, and how there was a marriage between those two. It created an unholy union. Certainly in a believer's life, when he gets to the point that he's more concerned about his walk with God before men than his walk with men before God, he's come to a dangerous place in his spiritual walk. It's with this thought that I've asked you these questions. And I'd love to take the time to go through all the seven churches. Uh, we won't do that tonight. But I'd like to look at the end of the matter. Truth is, most of us probably, uh, if I know people, uh, probably picked a number uh, somewhere between five and eight. We didn't pick below five because we don't like to think we're in the bottom percentage. We didn't pick above eight because we think we're too spiritual to think we're on fire for Jesus Christ. But we picked a number comfortably in the upper middle. You see, we're not too cold. But we'd have to admit that we're not too hot either. The Bible teaches us that this is a dangerous place for us to be in our Christian walks. And let me say that the end of an unrepentant Christian walk is not ice cold atheism or infidelism. But the end result of an unrepentant Christian walk is that we become lukewarm, spiritual enough to be satisfied, carnal enough to appeal to our flesh and appeal to this world. I want to say that in this passage, I see a few things and I just want to give them to you very quickly. And I want you to keep that number, whatever it was in your mind. Some of you changed it. I know you did. You already changed it. But now be honest and keep it in your mind. I want to say that first off, we see a spectator in this passage. Look with me at verse 14. And under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write. Now this is important. You know, it's pretty important when you write a letter. What do you usually start off with? You usually start off with a letterhead. You know why? You want them to know who that letter's from. When you get a letter in the mail, what's the first thing that you check on that, on that envelope? You don't check the address, uh, the recipient's address. You check the return address. You want to know who it's from. That matters. That's important. For instance, if I was to get a love letter from my wife, uh, that'd be a wonderful thing. I'd be blessed by that. Uh, if I was to get a love letter from Ralph, I'd be concerned. Amen? So the, re the return address matters. What's God's return address on the letter to the Laodiceans? These things saith... The Amen. That word literally means we use it all the time. Uh, we'll hear good singing. We'll say, hey, Amen. And we'll hear good preaching. Uh, we'll say, Amen. You know, But uh, we say that all the time. Hey, amen. People say it at the wrong time sometimes. People say, people are dying and going to hell by the droves. Somebody will say, hey, Amen. Amen literally means let it be. So be it. In other words, this is the truth. But to reiterate this thought, what does it say? It says, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. The Bible immediately denotes that the person writing this letter is watching something. They're seeing something. They're testifying to something. Uh, one of the first things when you're in a court of law that they'll ask for whenever the testimonies begin to uh, make their way through the uh, trial, they'll say, can we have the witnesses? That's somebody that's seen something that matters. We find that the writer of this letter is none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And what does he say? He says, I know thy works. We find that God begins by denoting the fact that your entire spiritual walk is open before God. There's nothing you do that God does not see. Now, that ought to bless us, but friend, that ought to scare us in some ways too. 
There's someone watching your walk with Christ. They see, they hear every lie that you tell. They see everything that you watch. They hear everything that you say. They're watching the things that you do. Christ is watching you. I know a lot of people believe that grandma and, uh, you know, mamma and papa are watching us from heaven. You're welcome to believe that. I won't pop your bubble. I won't rain on your parade. Uh, but one thing we are promised in the Word of God is that God is aware of our life. He's watching what we do. But I want to say not only is he a witness, but the Bible says he's a true witness. And it's one thing to be a witness. You can be a witness and be a false witness. I mean, there's people that bear false witness all the time. They say, I saw it this way, when really it wasn't that way. But the Bible tells us that the author of this letter is very truth. He's the true witness. Christ made this statement. He said, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. The Bible says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Uh, Christ said, if the Son hath made you free, you're free indeed. So if He can make you free, and you're free indeed, and you're free by knowing truth, it must be truth indeed, mustn't it? He knows the absolute truth, and He tells the absolute truth. Uh, our gospel track that we give out uh, has a title to it. Many of you have read it. Uh, some of you need to read it, amen. I won't mention names. But uh, uh, the track says, what does the Bible say about you? What does the Bible say about you? Do you know that when God says something about you and me, it's absolute truth? When God bears a testimony, bears a witness in our life, and you say, well, I know I've read the Bible. I'm not just talking about the Word of God. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, do you know that's absolute truth? I think many times when the Spirit of God convicts us, we think He's coming to barter with us or to convince us or to uh, try to persuade us. When the Holy Spirit of God, what does He do? He guides us into all truth. We won't know what truth is unless we're following the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit says, this area of your life is, needs to be renovated, we have to believe what He says or else it's of no effect in our lives. And the same thing's true about the Word of God. We can make the Word of God of none effect in our life by disbelieving and disobeying the Word of God. Uh, the spectator of this is a true and faithful witness. He's seen what you've done. You might say, well, he's seen what I've done in the past week or he's seen what I've done, you know, since I've been saved. But the Bible says he's the beginning of the creation of God. In other words, he's not just seen one or two things you've done, but he's seen everything that you've done. But we find that there's not only a spectator in this passage, but there's an assessment that's given. He says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. Now, some of you may know that the uh, natural reaction to drinking uh, large amounts of lukewarm water is what? Typically, you'll vomit. And we find that this response is completely in line with the Word of God. You know, God's Word has always been ahead of every single facet of society. Every single... Do you know that God's Word is a thousand years ahead of behavioral sciences? Uh, they're just finding out today. I was hearing the other day uh, that they did a study up in uh, some Michigan, I believe it was. They did a study concerning uh, youth uh, violence and youth, uh, youth delinquency. And they did a study, and after millions of dollars and thousands of government man-hours, they came to this conclusion. They said, every single human being is born a little savage. And if something is not done to correct it, they will inevitably turn towards violence and criminal activity. You know, the Bible, uh, they, could, <laughs> they could have saved a lot of money and a lot of time if they just read God's Word. The Bible says that their mouth is an open sepulcher. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says men love darkness. Why? Rather than light, because their deeds were evil. They could have saved a lot of money. 
And, uh, you know, the Bible's always been ahead of various uh, facets of science, but we find here that it's ahead of medical science or anatomical science or physiological science or biological science or however you want to describe it in saying that whenever you consume something lukewarm, the natural result is to spew it out. You can consume something real cold. Boy, there's nothing, nothing, nothing like a real good cold sweet tea, is it? Man. Oh, my friend. My blood sugar just went up just like that, just thinking about it. Nothing like a real good... Some of you remember when Coca-Cola's came in glass bottles, don't you? You remember that? And you remember that taste. It's not like it is from a can. I know. I'm not old, but I'm old enough to know that. And there's nothing like a real cold Coca-Cola out of a bottle. You can consume that. That doesn't bother you. And then I don't know how many of you like your coffee cold. You know, now they sell iced coffee. I drink it sometimes, uh, you know, uh, if, if I'm out and if, if that's what they've got. But, uh, you know, they, they sell iced coffee. Most of you, though, you don't like that, that cold coffee. You like coffee to be hot, don't you? I mean, you like it to be so hot that, that it comes with a warning label, right? That's why McDonald's sells it that way. That's how people like it. You like a good hot cup of coffee. But I don't know how many people here like a lukewarm cup of coffee. That's not very appealing. One of the first things you do when you go to the grocery store and buy, uh, buy you some Coca-Colas is you go home and you put them in the refrigerator. You know why? You don't want something that's lukewarm. It is a natural opinion of humanity that lukewarm things are unpalatable. And yet still... We look in amazement at God when He reacts the way He does at our life. What's the assessment that God gives towards the church at Laodicea? And I believe towards many believers today. He says, it'd be better off if you were cold and it'd be better off if you were hot. But the problem is, you're satisfied with your Christianity. You're resting right in the middle there. And you're happy to be there. Look at how He describes a person that is lukewarm. It says, because thou sayest... Now, he's still observing truth, but he's observing the falsehood that we believe when we're lukewarm. He says, thou sayest. He doesn't say this is the way it is. He says, you think it's this way. Thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. We find something indicative of our priorities in our life. You know, what's our greatest priorities? I don't want you to answer out loud, but I want you to think for a moment. Most of the time, our greatest priorities in life is a a roof over our head, food in our bellies, car to drive, clothes to wear. Those are our main priorities. But you know, the Bible says that a lukewarm Christian will be more concerned with temporal goods and more satisfied with the temporal things of this world than he will be the things of Jesus Christ. Where's our great priority in life? And, and I, you know, I'm not going to harp. I know we've got, we've got a faithful group of people here. But there's a lot of people in this world that they... Friend, I, I mean, they, they'd miss church before they'd ever miss work. Uh, they, they'd miss an opportunity to witness to someone about the gospel of Jesus Christ before they'd ever miss an opportunity to talk to them about football or baseball or basketball or politics or whatever it might be. Well, the fact is, we've got our priorities mixed up. The problem with the church at Laodicea was that they thought this about themselves. They say, I am rich and increased with goods. And this is the scariest thing that they said. And I want you to hear this. They said, and have need of nothing. Nothing. Have need of nothing. You know, when we get satisfied with our life, our walk with Christ the way that it is, you know what happens? It kills our prayer life. You know what drives the believer to his knees and begging for God's intervention is when we know that we have a need of something. God wants us to feel our needs. 
the Bible, the psalmist says, I am poor and needy. Some of us got the first part of it down good, don't we? It's just that last part that we've missed. We don't feel like we have a need of anything. My, my family's been asking me what I want for Christmas. And, uh, you know, I've told them it, it's... I'll be honest, let me just burst your bubble, kids. I, I'm on, this is going to be rough, okay? I'm going to burst your bubble. Christmas, the worst time for Christmas in a person's life, are you ready? Is when they're my age. You know why? I don't have kids to enjoy Christmas. I mean, I've got you all, but I don't buy you all anything. Uh, you know, but you're at an age where you feel like you don't really need anything. I, I've told people, anything in my life that I really need, you can't afford. And anything in my life that you can afford, I don't really need. I can go, I can buy the things, the small, simple things. How many of you ever had the torture of trying to buy Christmas for your father? Daddies complain about having so many ties. If they'd figure out what they want, they wouldn't get so many ties. Amen? Why do people do those things? Because typically a grown man feels like he really doesn't need anything. I mean big things that people can't afford, that they can't get for him. But typically small things in life, what do we say? We have need of nothing. The tragic things in our Christian walks, many times we get to the place where we're satisfied with our Christian walk, and we feel like we don't need anything more from God. Let me tell you exactly how much that you and I have of God. We have just as much as we want. You know what God did? He put the ball in our court in the book of James. said, draw nigh unto me, and I'll draw nigh unto you, saith the Lord. So in other words, God's saying, you can be as close to me as you want to. We see this in the life of Moses. Why was Moses upon the mountain? Because he longed for God more than any in Israel. The Bible says he was the meekest man on earth. You know what meekness is? Meekness is strength in check, sure. But meekness is an understanding of the source of your strength. Moses understood if he was to lead the children of Israel, he needed a touch from God in his life. That's why he was up on the mountain. But that wasn't good enough. You see, you know what God said to Moses? God said, Moses, you're going to lead these people. And I'm going to paraphrase here. You ready? You ready? You ready for the, for the TWV, the Toby Weber version? Now, don't call me an infidel, all right? This is the TWV. You know what he said? He said, God, I'm not going to lead them people. <laughs> God said, Moses, you're going to lead them people. He said, no, God, I'm not going to lead them people. He said, Moses, you're going to lead them people. And so finally, you know what Moses said? Moses said, I'll tell you what, God. I'll lead them, but only if you'll go with me. He didn't say, I need more help from outside sources. He didn't say, I need more men underneath me. He didn't say, I need more men to shore me up and strengthen me. He said, God, if I don't have you, I won't go anywhere. I'll die on this mountain before I'll leave without you. That was a man that understood his need. You know what God did for him? He said, Moses, there's a place by me here. I'm going to set you upon a rock. and I'm going to put you in the cleft of this mountain. I'm going to put my hand over you. And then I'm going to pass by and I'm going to let you see things that no one else has ever got to see. You know what happened in Moses' life? He understood his greatest need. He drew closer to God. He stood in a place no one else stood. No one else stood in the cleft of the rock. But Moses stood there. Why did he stand there? He stood there because he understood what his greatest need was. God, if you don't go, I won't go. That's the danger. We say we have need of nothing. But look, it goes on further. It says, And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Isn't it terrifying to know that that's what God thinks of the average Christian? 
You say, what do you mean average? You mean most Christians? No, I didn't say that. The average mediocre Christian, God says, you're wretched. What does that mean to be wretched? It means to to be completely destitute of worth. We talked about it this morning in the life of Mephibosheth. His name meant a shameful thing, something of no worth. And he understood this and he denoted himself as just a dead dog, something with no worth whatsoever. And you know what God says about a mediocre Christian? He says, you're worthless to the cause of Christ. Were you cold, I could chastise you and others would fear. Were you hot, I could bless you and others would be blessed. But because you're lukewarm, you're of no use to the cause of Jesus Christ. He says you're wretched. He says you're miserable. You're miserable. You know the first key to getting close to the Lord, the first key to seeing our Christian walk really skyrocket, I'm going to clue you in here, is that we get honest about things. I've said it before, I'll say it again. There's no one in the world more unhappy than a Christian out of the will of God. And you know, a lot of times we turn our life upside down trying to get satisfied whenever the real problem is that we're out of the will of God. As a pastor, I've seen it. As a youth pastor, I've seen it. People get away from the Lord, they turn their life upside down. They switch jobs, they switch families, they switch churches trying to figure out what the problem is. If you're unhappy tonight, let me tell you what the problem is. It's there's not enough Christ in your life. That's the problem. That's the problem. God says, you may not realize it. You may think you have need of nothing, but this unending loneliness and despair that you feel, you're miserable. You're miserable without me. You're miserable. He says, you're poor. You're poor. You might have all the wealth of this world, but you're poor in eternal treasures. The Bible says that where our treasures are, there will our heart be also. In other words, wherever our heart is, that's where we're going to build up treasures. Where our heart is, our treasures are. You know, many times I feel like a lot of Christians, the reason they get so earthly minded is because they're so earthly blessed. I'm not advocating uh, a life of solitude, living like a monk up in the mountains. I'm not advocating harming or hurting ourselves physically to try to attain unto God's pleasing. But let me just say that there's a real danger when we choose the smooth pasture lands of Sodom over the spiritual mountain land of Canaan. When we come to a place that we're more concerned about our cattle than we are our consecration, we've come to a dangerous place. He says you're poor in the things that matter. It's going to be a terrifying day for a lot of people. And I don't exempt myself from that. Let me say, I do not exempt myself from that. It's going to be a terrifying day when we stand before the Bema Seat of Christ. When we stand before the judgment seat of our Savior, there's going to be some of us, friend, we're going to walk in there, shoulders head high, thinking that we're coming to a treasury only to find out we're paupers. It's going to be a tragic day. We find that many are poor. The Bible says you're blind. You're blind. A Christian out of the will of God cannot see the will of God. A Christian out of the will of God cannot see the will of God. You say, what do I do if I get out of the will of God? You run as quickly towards Christ as you can, and when you're right with Him, you'll see the will of God. A Christian out of God's will cannot see God's will. We cannot look with spiritual eyes when we're carnally minded. The Bible says that the carnal mind is at enmity against God. You say, what does that mean? That means you're an enemy. You're an enemy 
An enemy is always doing one of two things. An enemy is always either coming towards you to assault you or fleeing from you to escape you. One of the two things. The carnal mind is at enmity with God. So the only time the carnal mind is thinking about God, it's thinking about God to tear Him down from His throne in your heart. The rest of the time it's fleeing away from the presence of God as quick as it can. You ever notice when you get sin in your life, you start to think less about Christ? Because the carnal mind is at enmity with God. We find that you're blind, but the Bible says that you're naked. You're naked. What what does that denote? That denotes a lot of things. We could spend a lot of time on that passage right there. One of these days I'm going to preach a sermon on the problem with being naked. (laughs) Who knows what kind of people will get in here then, amen? But the main idea is that there's no covering for your shame. No covering for your shame. By the way, nudity in the Word of God always coincides with shamefulness except when it's found within the marriage bedroom. Always. 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 There's only two times that nudity is not associated with shamefulness. One was in the Garden of Eden. And what happened when they sinned? They were ashamed. And the only other time is within the confines of the marriage bedroom. Those are the only two times. Every other time, nudity is a shameful thing denotes the idea that it's obvious to those around you that something is wrong. Something's wrong. Uh, you know, it used to be a time... <laughs> boy, I could just preach on society for an hour right here. You know, it used to be a time that when someone was seen out half-naked in society, they ought to be ashamed. Right. Now, you can see more skin going to the mall in summertime than used to you could buy on a corner newsstand or in a dark, dimly lit uh, uh, book, magazine place, a dimly lit bookstore. We live in a shameless society. But the fact is, whenever you're not right with God, people around you can see it. They can see it. And it's hard to explain it, except you just know it when you've experienced, when you've seen someone out of the will of God. What does Christ say? He says, it's obvious. I can see it all around. I want you to notice, though, we see a spectator. We see an assessment, but we see a solution. I'm just going to be very quick, but I want to give you this and close. In verse number 18, God says, I counsel thee. I counsel thee. That's important. We were talking on the way in uh, tonight, me and my wife were, about what respect means. And we live in a society where the only respect that the average person has is self-respect. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, respect is denoted by the weight to which you give someone's opinion. In other words, if I have a lot of respect for somebody, I'm going to listen to what they have to say, typically. I mean, whenever you go to your accountant, you go to him because you respect his abilities in accounting. That's why you go there, isn't it? You don't go to McDonald's to let him do your accounting. Now, you might go to McDonald's to let him cook you a hamburger. Now, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't respect that kind of cooking ability. But uh, we go to someone... And we seek their counsel because we respect them. Now, I want you to listen carefully. What does that say about a person that won't listen to anybody but themselves? It tells you that the only respect they have is self-respect. We live in a world that idolizes self-respect. You know what people say all the time? People say, you can't love another until you love yourself first. Well, that's hogwash. That's hogwash, because there's not a person alive that don't love themselves. You say, no, but I had an aunt or I had a cousin. No, but the book of Ephesians says no man ever yet hated his own flesh. The problem in this world is not a self-esteem problem. It's not that people have low self-esteem. It's that they esteem themselves more highly than they ought to. 
That's a problem. We don't have a self-respect problem in this world, except the problem is the only respect people have is self-respect. That's why they don't listen to anybody but themselves. Whenever we do not obey the Word of God, it's because we don't respect the Word of God. Let's just cut it like it is. That's what the faithful and true witness says. He says, I counsel thee. So God's saying, I'm going to give you a solution to the problem you're in. I'm going to show you how to go from a 4 or a 5 or a 6 or whatever to a 10, 11, and 12. I'm going to show you what it is to have a Christian life like it ought to be. What does Christ say? I counsel thee first off to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Gold tried in the fire. Boy, there's a lot to be said about that phrase. But I just want to say a couple things. The Bible says uh, that the trial of our faith is uh, like precious gold. In fact, it's more precious than gold, though it be tried with fire. We're not to think it strange. Uh, the Bible says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing hath happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of the sufferings of Christ. The Bible says that the trial of our faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth with fire. The fact is, he's talking about having more faith in God. But do you know that for you to walk closer to God, what does he say? He does not say, come pick up from me gold tried in the fire. He doesn't say, come and I'll give you gold tried in the fire. He says, buy of me gold tried in the fire. You know that for you to walk with Christ like you should, it's going, I'm, I'm going to rattle your cage here. It's going to cost you some things. I know, listen, I know salvation's free, bought, paid for by the blood of Christ. And, and praise His holy name for it. I'm not trying to take away from that one single iota. But I want you to get that it's going to cost you some things to live the Christian life like you ought to. It might cost you some things that you enjoy doing. It's going to cost you a little time that you'd spend, that you'd rather spend. Don't tell me for one minute that everybody, every single week that they come into church, they come into church just thrilled to death, tickled to be there. Now, I know, I know you're, you're more spiritual than I am, but you know, sometimes I wish my bed only had one side, but my bed has the other side, and sometimes I wake up on the wrong side of the bed. Now, some of you might know that that's the case with you too. And sometimes you wake up in the morning and you think, Boy, it'd just be so easy to lay here in this bed and not go. Uh, you know, it's funny uh, the the way I, I'm not I'm not I'm not a big on physics. I don't understand physics. I, I barely understood phys ed. Some of you can tell, amen. But what we find is, uh, isn't it strange how heavy that blanket gets in the morning? <laughs> Uh, it's amazing. Your house, you can have your heat on 80 degrees. When you wake up in the morning, did you know that the that the uh, the atmospheric temperature of the average home is negative 48 degrees when you wake up in the morning? And did you know that the average temperature under your blanket is 90 degrees every single week? That's just the way it is. I know it's that way. I'm flesh and bone. Everybody deals with that. Sometimes it's going to cost you something, though, to do the right thing. Uh, do you know that you are not... Now, this uh, man, friend, this, this flies in the face of everything that so many people have been taught. But listen carefully. Did you know you're not giving enough to Christ until you have to sacrifice to do it? You're not giving enough to Christ until you have to sacrifice to do it. What does the Bible say about the church? It says that they gave first of themselves. And, and you know what we like to think sometimes? We like to think that what that means is, well, they gave their time. And they did give their time. And we like to think, well, what that means is, is they gave of their energies and they did give of their energies. But you know what I kind of think that believe, uh, that means as well? I think it means that first they gave of what belonged to them and then God blessed them with enough to give over and above what they had ever imagined having. Did you know that if you'll really give your giving over to Jesus Christ, He'll give you money just to give away? Did you know that? 
He'll give you money just to give away. He'll give you money just to be a blessing to other people. Now, I know it means they gave their time and energy, but I think it also means they first gave themselves. They first sacrificed, and then God blessed them and gave them bounty. I'll give you a short story. Most of you know J.C. Penney's. Now, don't you women lie. Most of you know J.C. Penney's. J.C. Penney uh, was a godly man. He'd roll over in his grave if he was in his grave. His body's in his grave, but uh, his, his spirit's with the Lord. Amen. Uh, but uh, as the colloquial term goes, he'd roll over in his grave if he saw the things that J.C. Penney's the business is doing today. But J.C. Penney, the man, uh, decided that he was going to see if he could outgive God. And you know, most people, the standard, the standard, I mean, what God, when you fill out your taxes to God, you know, 10% is what most people think God is a flat tax person. He takes 10% off the top. I know that. But uh, J.C. Penney said, you know, that don't, that don't seem right. I'm going to flip her around. And J.C. Penney started giving 90% of everything that he got, giving it away to the cause of Christ. You think J.C. Penney died a poor, penniless pauper? He died in his time one of the wealthiest men in America. You can't outgive God. Listen, this isn't name it and claim it. This isn't planting a seed. This is scriptural Bible giving that you're not giving enough until it's costing you something. Same thing can be said of time and energy and all these various things. But I want you to notice that if you're going to live for Christ like you ought to, it's going to cost you something. It says to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Notice what it says in white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. The only acceptable clothing. Now, remember who the spectator is, right? The spectator is Jesus Christ. Now, this is not... You know there's a different standard for what's acceptable uh, between God and between men? Did you know that? There's some things that men accept that God does not accept. And uh, the way that uh, people dress today, men may accept that. We've become callous to... You can't even turn on the television. They can't sell you a hamburger without peddling flesh along with it. But that doesn't mean that it's acceptable to God. Notice this is God's standard. He says, white raiment that you may be clothed. Denotes holiness. Let me tell you something. Nothing in the Christian life substitutes for true Bible consecrated holiness. Nothing. Uh, so-called joy. And a lot of, you know what a lot of joy is today? A lot of joy is nothing but entertainment. It was a wise man that said that the devil's substitute for joy is entertainment. And that's what you see in a lot of churches. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of churches that would not sit and listen to this sermon tonight. A lot of churches. Some of you are thinking, give me the name. <laughs> but uh, a lot of churches wouldn't put up with Bible preaching. A lot of churches, they don't mind if you talk about sin. Just don't name it. Just don't say what it is. Sin is an idealistic thing floating out somewhere. You know you know what sin is when it's nothing but, uh, but an, an ideal it's whatever the guy next to you is doing. That's what sin is when it's nothing but an ideal. God's Word denotes what sin is. And preachers ought to preach what sin is. But we find that the acceptable raiment is determined by God. We go to God's Word to find out what's acceptable in our lives. You know that the average Christian... Now, I'm talking about the average one. I'm talking about the mediocre one now. Do you know that they never go to God's Word to find out what's acceptable for their life? but they only go to their own perception of what morality is. It's the only place they go. Uh, they'll say, well, I, I reckon it's okay to do this. Well, why? Well, I just reckon it is. Reckoning doesn't, doesn't equate with righteousness. You better get God's Word on it if you want to know whether it's really right, whether it's really wrong. He says, by uh, white raiment that you may be clothed. Look what it says. It says, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, 
that thou mayest see. You say, what is the eye salve? We could, we could go a lot of directions. We could say it's the balm of Gilead. And certainly until a person's born again, they cannot see like they ought to. But I don't think the key to that passage is the word eye salve. I think the key to that passage is the word anoint. We find that anointing in the New Testament, it always coincides with the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray a lot of times. I'll pray, and I've heard other preachers pray. And we'll cry out and we'll say, Lord, just give me unction. What is unction? It's another word for anointing. In other words, let the Spirit of God be able to use my words to the effectiveness of the hearts of both believers and sinners alike. So the only way that we can see things like we ought to see them is to see them through the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you something. I said it earlier. A person outside of God's will cannot see the will of God. It's impossible. But let me say something else. A person that is not right with God cannot in and of themselves see how to get right with God. Do you know that the vast majority of Christians, because they are disobedient to the Holy Spirit, have no idea why their Christian life is so messed up? The vast majority of Christians, because they are disobedient to the Holy Spirit, because when the Spirit of God convicts them, they disobey and they say, Lord, you are wrong about what's wrong in my life. The vast majority of them have no clue why their Christian life is so messed up. They look around and they say, I can't figure out how to get right. I want to tell you how to get right. Look what it says in the next verse. We finally come down to the simplicity of this solution. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Repent. When the Spirit... Boy, I believe in repentance. Can I say that twice? Boy, I believe in repentance. We find in this passage that when the Spirit of God tells you what's wrong in your life, don't argue with Him. He's been around longer than you are, and He is the one that guides you into truth. When the Word of God... Let me tell you what would help 90% of Christians if they would go from not reading the Word of God at all every day to reading it just 15 or 20 minutes every day. Because the vast majority of Christians do not crack their Bible open from Sunday to Sunday. The only time the Bible is open is when the preacher says, open your Bibles. They think we have the say in it. Amen? Boy, I'm right there with who was it? Uh, Mr. Wycliffe, I believe, uh, that said our missionary. You know, missionaries are smart. They're smart. They really are. Mr. Wycliffe, I believe, that cried out uh, that every single plowboy in England might have a copy of the Word of God. Maybe it was Mr. Tyndall. Who was it? Wycliffe. Yeah, well, that's the, you're, you're, you ain't in London yet. It's Wycliffe down here. <laughs> Wycliffe. I believe that every single believer, if they would every day open their Bible... And listen, I'm not saying you read 50 chapters every day. Now... You won't be the worse for it if you do. But I'm saying if you take your Bible, spend 15, 20 minutes in it, reading it and listening to the voice of God, you'd be amazed what it'd do in your life. The Bible says that the Word of God is what? It's the sword of the Spirit. Without the Word of God, the Spirit of God is not equipped 
You say, oh, that's not, no, the Spirit of God, He's powerful. And he, oh, I understand He's powerful. No, you don't understand the Spirit of God. You know, He convicts. Oh, I understand He convicts. But a soldier is no good without his sword. And the Bible says the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. If the Word of God is not prevalent in your life, the Spirit of God is not at liberty to convict you like He would want to. The truth is the only way we can get close to God is to submit ourselves to Him and say, Lord, I'm an open book before you. Any area of my life, I've, I've not put up any fences in my heart. God, every bit of it belongs to you. I wonder what number you picked at the beginning of the service. And I wonder if you'd be honest enough. Listen, if you're not going to be honest tonight, this message didn't help you a bit. If you're not going to be honest tonight, this message won't affect you one single ounce. You'll walk out of here feeling the same way that you did when you walked in. But if you'll be honest, and if you'll say, I know I'm not where I need to be tonight. Can I tell you, you say, the Lord convicted me. And that's not a pleasant feeling. Did you know that? It's not a pleasant feeling. But why did the Lord do it? As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. The Lord convicted you tonight because He loves you, because He cares enough about you to follow you into a whale's belly if He has to, rather than let you go off backslidden to Tarshish. That's how much the Lord loves you. Tonight, if you'll submit yourself to the Holy Spirit, let the Spirit of God work in your heart and life, you can walk out of here closer to God than you were when you came in.